Well, uh, church, you are all familiar with the uh, saying that when it rains, it pours, right? Uh, it's the, the idea that when something good or bad occurs, it usually occurs more than once and often within a, a short period of time. Well, well, it's been that kind of week for me in regard to preaching. Over the past seven weeks, uh, we've been in a, in a, in a, a sermon series that's, that's been fairly serious, uh, that's, that's been sometimes heavy, uh, that's been potentially divisive and, and controversial, uh, as we've been in this sermon series on the politics of the kingdom of heaven. And, and while I think it's been really good for us to engage this question of, of how, do our, how does our faith inform our politics, I'll be the first to say that I was really glad that the sermon series was, was over. And I was looking forward to preaching on something that was a bit lighter, uh, a, bit, a bit more fun, uh, a bit less controversial. And so on Tuesday of this week, I, I opened up my prayer book and I, I began searching the lectionary passages that were assigned for the church uh, for this Sunday. And all four of them, three of which we just read, but all four of them were about the coming judgment of God on the great and terrible day of the Lord. Things aren't getting any lighter. <laughs> when it rains, it pours. And as I thought about uh, those passages, as I looked over them, I, I felt a little bit like the Skins team in this medieval pickup battle, right? <laughs> uh, there, there is no chance of winning here. <laughs> Uh, the Skins team has zero chance of being successful here. That's, that's a little bit what it felt like to be the preacher this week and to turn to passages of judgment. Uh, you, you know, uh, are we really supposed to go uh, from, from, from politics uh, to judgment? So, so I backed away from those passages, and, and I decided instead that I was going to talk to you guys today about joy and, and the joy that we have in Jesus. And as I started looking at, at other passages that talked about joy, I was, I was getting into those, but the Lord kept bringing me back to these lectionary passages. And I was frustrated at first because I didn't want to engage them. It felt like they'd be hard and they'd be difficult and, and it would be another kind of heavy week. But ultimately, I, I surrendered because I know that part of the gift of the lectionary is that it forces us to deal with passages that we'd rather not preach and that left to ourselves we may never preach on, but that nevertheless we need to hear. And so I decided to, to hunker down and to talk to you all about judgment today. <laughs> but as I got into these passages, I was overwhelmed by the goodness of God. Because what we find in each of these passages is judgment, yes, but also joy. Each of these passages actually points us to a joy that is present in the midst of judgment, which I actually believe may be the most profound kind of joy possible. Because if we can be a people who have joy on the worst day that this world will ever know, then it means that we can be a people who have joy in every day that we're given to live in this life. And I believe that this is God's word for us today that we are to be a people of joy, even in the presence of judgment. And so as we look at these passages this morning, we're going to consider the judgment that is coming, the joy that it can contain, and how Jesus 
makes that joy possible. We're going to jump back and forth between all three of these passages throughout the sermon. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to to open up to Matthew chapter 25, to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and to Psalm 90. Keep keep a finger in each one of those spots, and, and we're going to be flipping back and forth as we look at these passages. Now first, we're going to consider uh, the judgment that is coming. And it's important that we consider the coming judgment, because it's an issue that many people have a hard time with, but that the Bible tells us we need to be prepared for. We see this judgment in each of these passages that were read. In Matthew's, uh, Matthew chapter chapters 24 and 25, uh, Jesus was in the final days of his life, and he was sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city of Jerusalem, and is actually the place where the Old Testament prophets declared that God would appear on the great and terrible day of the Lord. <clears throat> and in these chapters, he was teaching his disciples about all that was going to come, the signs of the close of the age, the coming of the Son of Man, the mystery around when that would take place. And then he, he taught on some parables and some warnings about the final judgment that was to come. In our passage, Jesus warned that on that final day, it would be like a landowner who had entrusted his property to his servants before going away on a journey, but that at some point in time, the owner was going to return and would demand an accounting of what the servants had done with all that had been entrusted to them. Had they been good stewards over what the owner had given them or not? And to the good stewards who had been faithful with what had been entrusted to them, God was pleased. But to the steward who had done nothing with what had been given to them, God was displeased. And he instructed that the worthless servant be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus goes on in the passage immediately following to describe the judgment that is coming at the end of time. And the Son of Man will come in glory and all of his angels with him. And he will sit on his throne and all of the nations will gather before him and will be separated. And the righteous will go into eternal life, but the unrighteous will go into eternal punishment. This was Jesus' last public teaching to the world. That there is a day of judgment that is coming. In our passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul is faithfully teaching the church in Thessalonica these same truths. He says that the day of the Lord is going to come at a time when no one expects it, like the labor pains of a pregnant woman, and that for some on that day there will be wrath, and for others salvation. Judgment is coming. Psalm 90 also speaks of the judgment of God for the sins of the world. But this passage, it speaks of the present wrath of God that is being poured out on all mankind for our wrongdoing. After acknowledging the glory of God in verses 1 and 2, the psalmist references man's return to the dust and being swept away with the flood. These are allusions back to man's disobedience in the Garden of Eden and the great flood in the days of Noah. Both of those events were were God's judgment on the sin of humanity. And throughout the psalm, this reality of judgment continues to be proclaimed. He says that that we are being brought to an end by God's anger, verse 7. That our days pass away under His wrath, verse 9. 
And he describes the relatively short span of our lives as as filled with toil and trouble. Verse 10, these are all effects of the fall of mankind and of our sin in the world. Each of these passages, really along with all the rest of the scriptures, acknowledge the reality of the judgment of God upon sin and of the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord when God will bring the fullness of his judgment upon the earth for all of the wrongdoing that has occurred. There is a day of judgment that is coming. And understandably, this is a very unpopular doctrine. (laughs) Nobody likes the idea of judgment. It's difficult to hear. It's even more difficult to think about and to, to choose to believe. This is a hard idea to understand and to accept. And as a result, many people are confused by the doctrine. They'd ask, why can't God just forgive everyone, let everyone into heaven? Why does he insist in a seemingly cruel way that some people must go to hell? They're confused by the idea. It doesn't make sense to them. Others would argue that that the doctrine of judgment is simply not true. They would argue that if God is loving and, and the Bible says that he is, then he couldn't send anyone to hell. They would argue that this would be unloving and would contradict God's nature, which he cannot do. They refuse to accept that a loving God could also be a judging God. And these are important ideas to wrestle with because they're prominent thoughts in our world. And to be honest, I think we all wrestle with them in one way or another. But to our doubts and our questions, the scripture provides some answers. Because while the Bible does say that that God is loving, it also says that there is a coming judgment and that God will send some people to hell. So could it not be that both things are right and true at the same time? Just because God is loving does not mean that He loves everything. There are some things that God doesn't love. In fact, there are some things that God hates. Proverbs chapter 6 Verses 16 through 19 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And that list isn't intended to be the sum total of what God hates. It's a sampling. God is love, but there are lots of things that he hates. And actually, in order for God to be loving towards us, he he, he by necessity must hate the things which harm us. I mean, think about it. It wouldn't be very loving of God to look at something like, like child abuse and be unbothered by it or worse, to be loving towards it. No. We want those things to be judged and punished and ended so that they cannot harm innocent victims anymore. We need those things. We need to know that they they will be judged and punished and ended in order to be able to have have a peace, in order to be able to feel safe. So, So God is loving, and yet he doesn't love everything. And because our loving God hates bad things, because he hates the things that harm us, 
He's promised to do something about them. He's promised to judge them and to remove them from His presence so that they can do no more harm to His people. And that is actually good news. That is what we all want. We all have an innate desire for justice where we want to see that happen. We saw this desire for justice boil over in our nation this summer after the death of George Floyd. No justice, no peace was the cry in our streets for months on end. There is a deep desire in all of us to know that wrongdoing will be punished and stopped and that innocent lives will be protected. So it's good news that people who mistreat others are judged and punished and are removed so that they can't hurt others anymore. It's actually a loving thing that a just God would hate and punish wrongdoing. It's the only way that heaven can be the perfect place that we all want it to be. And so the fact that God brings justice and and judges and punishes evil is important, and it is good. And yet, this desire for justice that is within us all leaves us with a rather large dilemma. Because none of us are perfect. None of us have treated God the way that we were supposed to treat Him. None of us have treated each other the way that we were intended to. I know I haven't treated people as I should have. I've hurt people, emotionally and physically, through both my actions and my inactions. I've ignored people's needs, intentionally and unintentionally. I haven't treated people the way that I would want to be treated by them. And I haven't treated God as I should have either. I've ignored Him and disregarded Him. I've committed sins of, of commission and sins of omission, doing what I knew I shouldn't do and not doing what I knew I should have done. And so if I want to cry out for justice, then I need to be very careful because I deserve punishment for my wrongdoings too. And you do as well. We all actually deserve to be punished for the things that we've done wrong. Justice would demand that we all deserve judgment. So the question that we should really be asking isn't, why doesn't God save everybody? The question we should be asking is, why would God save anybody? None of us deserves to go to heaven. If any of us were to be led into heaven, we'd mess the whole place up. It would end up being just as corrupt as the earth. None of us deserves to go to heaven. What we all actually deserve is to be sent to hell. And again, I know that's a very unpopular belief, but we have to remember and to acknowledge that just because we don't like something doesn't mean that it's not true. The Word of God makes very clear that there is a judgment from God that is coming upon the earth because of our sin and that we all deserve it. At this point, you may be wondering, where's the joy in this message? So far, this has been the least joyful sermon ever. And if the story ended here, which it should, if the story ended in judgment, which would be fair and which would be just and which would be right, this wouldn't be a very joyous story at all. But in the grace and mercy of God, this is not where the story ends. Because throughout all of the talk in the scriptures about the coming judgment, 
there is always a thread of hope. (laughs) And in each of these passages about judgment that we read, there was a hidden joy embedded within each one of them. Did you see it? In the parable from Matthew chapter 25, which is surrounded on all sides by news of the impending judgment, and which is itself a warning about judgment, tucked into the very middle of it was a ray of hope. For the one who was a faithful steward over what the master had entrusted to their care, the response at the master's return was not one of condemnation, but it was one of consolation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. For the faithful servant, their fate was not judgment, but joy. The same is true in 1 Thessalonians. After Paul reminded the church of the judgment that was going to come upon the earth, he encouraged them that for those who have put on the breastplate of faith, that God would greet them not with his wrath, but with salvation. And he exhorted the church to continue to encourage one another and to build one another up with this great and joyous hope. And in Psalm 90, after all the reminders of the wrath of God that is already being poured out on mankind for their sin, in verse 13, there is the hope that when God returns, they will be met with pity and not with justice. That they'll find mercy instead of judgment. And that for as many days as they've seen suffering and evil here on the earth, that they will experience gladness and rejoicing for at least that many days to come and and even more. In each of these passages and throughout all of the scriptures, in the midst of the warnings of impending judgment, there is always the potential for joy. And this is the good news of the gospel. The judgment doesn't have to be the final word. It doesn't have to get the last say. Instead, it can be joy. And so the question for each of us to ask is, how do we determine which word will get the final say in our lives? Judgment or or joy? How can you know what the final word of your story will be? What the scriptures show us is that the thing which determines whether the final word of our lives will be judgment or joy is our response to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, the servant who enters into the joy of his master does so, we are told, because of his faithfulness. He responded during the master's absence with a faith-filled life. In 1 Thessalonians, those who avoid the wrath of God do so because uh, uh, they obtained salvation through Jesus Christ. In Psalm 90, the, the people experienced the favor of God by recognizing that they deserved judgment, but by asking God to have mercy on them when he returned instead. And in each of these passages, we are reminded that the determining factor on the final word of our lives is found in our response to Jesus. Will we have faith in Him? Will we seek salvation through Him? Will we ask for mercy from Him? In order for joy to mark our future rather than judgment, it depends on our response to Jesus. And the reason that this is the case is because in Jesus, God has given us a way out of the judgment that we deserve. He doesn't do this by leaving our wrongdoing unpunished. That wouldn't satisfy the need for justice. 
Instead, he does it by coming to earth in the person of his son in order to take our deserved and necessary punishment upon himself. Jesus takes our place, dies our death, experiences our hell so that we don't have to. He endured the wrath of God towards our sin on our behalf. He experienced the separation from the Father that our sin causes in our place. He paid the price of his life so that we wouldn't have to pay the price of ours. And as a result, judgment is served, justice is met, and God shows himself to be perfectly loving. Loving the world enough to punish wrongdoing and to make things right. And loving us enough to take our punishment upon himself and to save us from the destruction that we deserve. These passages remind us of the truth that there is a judgment that is coming upon our world. A day when God will make right all that has been done wrong. Where ultimate and final justice will be served. But they also remind us that in the midst of that coming judgment, we can be a people who experience great joy. We can know peace rather than punishment on that day. Love rather than loss. And it all depends on how we respond to Jesus. Will we have faith in Him and live a faith-filled life while we wait for Him to return? Will we trust in Him for our salvation and believe that His death on the cross was a substitute for our own? Will we live in dependence upon His mercy in our lives? If we will, then we'll know a joy that will abide even in the worst day that this world has to offer. And the significance and the implications of that reality are that if we can experience joy on even the worst day of life, then we can be a people who experience joy on every day of our lives. Even when when things feel like they're falling apart around us, we don't need to fear. If we can make it through the great and terrible day of the Lord with joy, when the world is literally falling apart around us, we can make it through anything that this world throws at us with a deep and abiding joy intact. Or if we experience judgment or criticism or or if we get canceled by culture for some reason, we don't need to be crushed by it. If we can have joy through the ultimate judgment of God, then the judgments of this world should have no effect on the joy that abides and that lives within our hearts. If we can experience joy on even the worst day of life, we can be a people who experience joy on every day of our lives. May we do so for God's glory and for our good. Amen.